The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And welcome to another Global Liberty Alliance podcast. This is your host, Jason Poblet, coming to you as always from uh, the great Commonwealth of Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C. We're in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, where today we're going to talk about a, uh, a, a mission of love and also uh, a focus of, on a special issue that uh, I've been involved with for some time and have met some very remarkable people like our guest today, uh, and, and just a few blocks away from our office uh, at the Virginia Federal District Courthouse, uh, there is an interesting case taking place that's very important to uh, so some of the issues we're going to talk about today. And our guest today is Diane Foley. Uh, she is the mom of James Foley, uh, a freelance journalist that many of you may know was uh, unfortunately uh, savagely murdered by ISIS on August 19th, 2014 in Raqqa, region of Syria. Um, she has uh, been involved in not only preserving his legacy, but advancing the work that uh, James Foley was doing. I never got to meet James. Uh, I wish I did. He seems like a remarkable fellow. And I've learned a lot about him through uh, Diane's. And Diane, I, I, I just, uh, before I get into your background, um, hello, welcome to the podcast. And we're very happy you were able to join us today. It's an honor, Jason. Thank you. And before we talk about the Foley Foundation, let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, before we talk about Jim, let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, you've been involved with, uh, you were thrust into the advocacy space. I don't think it's something, it's fair to say that you thought you'd ever do. Uh, but before you were doing that, you, well, you're a mom and uh, you've uh, been involved in your community for a long time. You have a master's in nursing from, I think, the University of New Hampshire, and you worked as a, a nurse practitioner for a long time. But it sounds to me like you're now more of a of an advocate. Uh, 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 you got involved in policy and politics. How did you tell us a little bit about, uh, about Diane pre uh, the James Foley Foundation? Uh, sure. Um, I'm the mother of five children. Um, Jim um, James Foley, um, who became a freelance journalist, was the oldest of our five, mm -hmm. and I. I've been a nurse all my life. And in the last 20 years, um, I worked as a family nurse practitioner, which was a great joy for me. Um, I was totally ignorant of Washington politics, certainly of hostage taking. And, and to be honest, I didn't even um, recognize um, truly the worth of um, investigative journalism and the risks they take. So um, it's hmm. um, been a real um, journey for me. But um, when our son was taken hostage, um, that's what caused me to enter um, this space, um, primarily because we were desperately trying to bring him home. 
No, uh, James, um, he was, for those of you who don't know about him, he was, as, as Diana said, a, a journalist, a video reporter. He's done a lot, did a lot of freelance uh, war corresponding work during the Syrian civil war and did a lot of other work. How was it when he would take, because he did a lot of other work also, uh, and he would go to very dangerous places. How was it in the family when you, when he was heading off on a trip and how would you, you know, stay in contact with him? Because I'm sure he was staying in contact with you when he, when he was out in, in these very dangerous places. Yes, um, Jim was very good about keeping in touch, thankfully. However, um, 10 years ago, when he was most active in his freelance work in the Middle East and Afghanistan, he, um, the technology was not where it is today. So, um, however, whenever he was in an area where, where there was Wi-Fi, he was very good about keeping in close touch as, as much as he could. It was very, very difficult. Um, I prayed a lot during those mm. years. Um, you know, um, very difficult to let your loved ones go do dangerous work. And yet, it was a work that Jim became more and more committed to. He um, saw the need to um, share um, or really augment the voices of people around the world that he could tell were not being heard. And I think Jim was, became particularly passionate during um, what that time of hope that, that we call in quotes, the Arab Spring, mm. um, when a lot of the people in the Middle East were really, um, really seeking freedom um, from a lot of their leadership that tended to be more autocratic and dictatorial. So um, Jim saw it as an important time in history and that these people needed to be heard by the rest of the world. So he was very committed to this. And um, he, seemed, he seemed very passionate about uh, what he was doing. Uh, absolutely, yeah. without a doubt. And you have to be when you do this sort of work because it's um, not, for, not only not for the faint of heart, but you could choose so many uh, uh, careers and have a, you know, vocations in life, but it takes a very special person to engage in the type of work that he was doing and that so many other journalists do and human rights defenders do around the world, then um, we need more people like that. And that's, it gets to the, you know, before we get to the, the purpose of the, of the foundation, uh, tell us a little bit about what happened. I mean, he, for those of you, again, who don't know about the case, we're going to post a lot of information on there that you can learn about it. There's also a good movie out there that you could watch. Uh, you know, Ms., uh, James spent about 630 plus days in captivity. Uh, tell, tell our listeners briefly what that was like. And eventually when you started to deal with the government, uh, because folks, let me tell you, this lady single-handedly, I think, reoriented uh, U.S. hostage policy. And, and she may not have realized that that's what she was doing, but uh, through, through her energy, that of the family has helped shape hostage policy today. And to understand what, how, you know, how difficult that was, I think you need to know a little bit about what her struggles were like when for those 600 plus days uh, she was interacting with the U.S. government. If you could give us a little a thumbnail about what that was like. Sure. I, 
as I said before, knew nothing about the risk of international hostage taking. I really did not. And um, Jim's career in journalism was really his second career. Jim um, had two master's degrees, one in creative writing and one in journalism, and had taught at um, in um, writing and um, in the university, also worked for Teacher for America for years. Mm. But I think he finally came to see that he really wanted to tell real stories. He really wanted to find the truth of what was going on in the world and share it with people. And that's why I think he became more and more um, passionate about what he was doing. Um, he was first taken hostage in Libya actually, which was a, a short captivity. Um, he was taken by Gaddafi's forces um, in the Benghazi region of Libya during their um, uh, search for their Arab Spring, if you will, for freedom. Right. So, um, but that, that was, um, we knew the Gaddafi forces had taken him. And, um, but even that was a very, very difficult time. But um, Jim did come home, thanks to the help of a stranger, a total stranger. It was really David Bradley, the chairman of the Atlantic Media, who helped get a lot of um, Teach for America um, friends of Jim's to do a lot of research and find uh, an American from Vermont, of all places, mm. who had worked for the um, Gaddafi sons and was able to intervene and um, see that Jim and his colleagues were, in fact, released. It was miraculous, really. Mm. Um, his, um, so when he went into Syria, he went in armed with a SAP phone and uh, um, many um, safety training courses and all. But as I say, a lot of the technology had not, was not certainly what it is today. So um, contact was still limited in certain parts, certainly of Syria. Hmm. Um, so Jim um, had gone in and out of Syria throughout 2012, um, reporting and um, primarily for um, Agence France Presse, which is like the, uh, the French AP, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and he worked for several other outlets, Global Post of Boston and others, and um, was really enjoying the work, um, really felt it was very meaningful. Um, but on Thanksgiving Day 2012, he was taken hostage within a few miles of the Turkish border. Um, and we, we never heard his voice again. Mm. And so that's when our horror began, really. And this time it was very different because we had no idea who had taken Jim. Um, absolutely none. Many rumors abounded for the next few months. Um, FBI did um, reach out to us. However, we were assigned a young man who knew nothing about the Middle East, um, did not know Arabic, it recommended that we reach out to President Assad for help. Um, just on, really your, on your own? Yes, it really mm. didn't understand the region at all. Mm. Um, and um, <laughs> wow. that was pretty daunting. 
um, also, uh, he was not even sent to the area where, of, where he was captured um, or near it um, for almost a month, three weeks after he was taken. And by then, you know, that was really much too late. Um, there were no leads. He disappeared. And we never really heard um, that he was even alive until September of uh, the following year, um, 2013. So we were really at the mercy. We, we had no idea what to do or how to go about it. Previously, our old, second oldest son had engaged with one of um, Jim's a Global Post of Boston outlet, uh, a, a good man by the name of Phil Balboni, um, really tried to help us get um, Jim out of Libya, even though it was another um, good man, David Bradley, who actually achieved it. But this time, we didn't know what to do. Um, FBI was in charge and the lead, and yet um, they didn't know anything and kept asking us for more and more information. So it was a very frightening time, a very lonely time. And I learned a lot about um, how confusing and desperate a uh, family of someone who's taken hostage abroad can feel. Um, we, we had no idea where to turn, Jason. Um, we didn't know anybody in Washington. Um, and we really uh, didn't know how to find Jim. That was our first goal, was to see if we could find him and see if he was alive. That was our, our first goal. And for nine months, we didn't know that. Let me ask you something about that, because I think families that are going through this or will go through this, because I think it's going to keep happening. There's a lot of state and non-state actors out there who make a living off doing this. Um, what is it like when you don't have the information? Now, one thing is to not know where your family and member, your family and loved one is, but how does it feel when not even our own government sometimes um, and the expectations, a lot of people we've advised over the years are surprised to learn that in some cases, they're pretty much on their own, that uh, this is a situation that even though the policy is better, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that, it's, you know, the, the, that space that you're in, that you're not getting information from our government, you're not getting information from the people who may be holding uh, your loved one. What does that feel like? It's, it's, it's a, what does it feel like? It's, it's just one of the, it is the most frightening thing I've ever gone through. Mm -hmm. the, um, I felt totally powerless. I'm mm. so grateful for my faith in God because mm. that was what sustained me and our family throughout and Jim, I feel quite certain throughout his captivity. Um, but it was, it was just devastating mm. to, um, and I, I was very naive also. I just thought, you know, the United States of America, I mean, they would know where Jim That's is. Right. Yeah. They would know how to get him out. They would tell me what, what's what. But, but the more, longer it went on, I found out that, you know, the FBI didn't know where he was and they didn't know the language and they didn't know the particulars of what was going on on the ground. And they couldn't tell me anything. 
and um, and that State Department um, didn't work with the FBI on this case. <laughs> they didn't know the people who were working on the case, and and that the White House really wasn't very interested in Jim. He was a young freelancer. He wasn't a well-known um you know media star or anything like that um he was just a good honest american who was working hard to um be the best journalist he could so but all of that was very um eye-opening and appalling at times to me mm. to find that people often when i would go to washington would send me in circles if they didn't know the answer they'd refer me to the other agency um often you know um that really couldn't give me any information um hard to know if they had any information <laughs> you know <laughs> but, when you that's that's remarkable because believe it or not that's what happens in just about almost every issue area that you can imagine when you engage with a government as large as the u.s government it's it's quite of an, it can be an overwhelming experience regardless of the issue. In fact, um, it's sad at a certain level because you would think that the, the, the number one duty of the State Department and the national security in, uh, complex is to protect American lives, even if it's just one person. And it would trump um, all other issues. But unfortunately, when you engage in this issue, unlawful detentions and hostage taking it, it's uh, at times the government can't in fact the government cannot be everywhere at the and, and they can't be keeping tabs on everybody and they and they don't you know americans we pride ourselves and it's a good thing that we can travel freely wherever we want and we make choices and but when something like what happened to jim happens you would expect at least some some people do i i did uh in in other cases i worked on that we would jump up and make that a priority that doesn't always happen though right that, i think that was the there were a couple things that were surprised to me one is that it uh, an american citizen in this situation was not a priority mm. was surprising to me that that it really wasn't a great interest um <laughs> yeah. and and uh, except for our senator senator jean shaheen was amazing um, hugely supportive, um, but she she seemed rather powerless to help me much. I mean, she would try to connect me with people and that kind of thing, but otherwise um, was uh, she was support very supportive. But um, the other thing I found is that at that time there was no real mechanism. There was no one who was really in charge of helping an American who might be wrongfully detained by another government or kidnapped abroad, mm. actually taken hostage by a criminal gang. Um, there was no entity I found in our government who was responsible to bring them home. I mean, Counselor Affairs was responsible for letting me know that Jim was missing. Um, and they were very kind, very sweet. People were nice to me. It wasn't that they weren't right. nice. Right. It was just that they they didn't know how to help me. I mean, they really didn't. It wasn't their job. Um, they took my. They would take kindly take my meeting, and listen. 
but usually then send me some to some other agency. So that was the part that was so, uh, so upsetting, really. Yeah, I and, found and no one who was in charge, if you will, or accountable and, or. Yeah. And, and, and that's the, and you're, and that's extremely important. There's a lot of people, frankly, who want to help and they're nice people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I find that at times there's just a lack of, I don't know if it's leadership or the government wasn't really prepared for it. And, you know, the curious thing about the space, and we'll talk about that in a second, is that the last time we really had a major policy shift in American hostage unlawful detention was back in 1868. So it's quite remarkable with some exceptions. You had this period from 1868 to 2020 where you had a rudderless policy that's it, it's gelled a little bit better now, uh, but it's it, and it's getting better. But a lot of times it just takes some leadership and having the the energy, and you have to stay engaged like you do to see uh, uh, make sure that it happens. The the when so walk us through a little bit then uh, uh, about how. Uh, what motivated you? We've talked about this before, um, that you had this, you stepped into this policy hydra, right? This black hole even at times. Uh, and when you learned about what happened to your son, when did you decide, how did you decide, say, you know what? We have to do something about this uh, because this can't keep, a lot of people, frankly, would have just walked away from this and said, enough, I've suffered, my family suffered, my son suffered. Uh, but there's something important about the work you do, which is extremely important long term for anyone who finds themselves in this situation, is that it's not just saving the loved one uh, or trying to find justice, but both. You have to have saving accountability. You have to be engaged in this no matter how long it takes. If not, the bad people win. Uh, when did you decide, hey, and, and, and that something had to happen. If not, this will keep happening. Well, after, you know, it was really, um, I couldn't, Jim was an incredible young man. And for anyone who's interested, he was like the best of America, the, like so many of you good people listening, I'm sure. Um, and if any of you are interested, the film is quite good, was done, actually done by a friend of his, a childhood friend. It's called Jim, the James Foley Story. And it's a documentary pretty much everywhere. It's on Netflix and Amazon and HBO. But Jim was a, a remarkable young man in that, in his ordinariness, he was fun loving and, but he was really a kind guy and he loved life and he wanted to do good in the world um, and worked, for, as I said, for Teach for America, taught um, kids in the inner city of Phoenix for years and Chicago, Holyoke, um, did a lot of that um, along the way. So Jim cared very deeply about people and that was partly why he, it led him to journalism and to real stories about real people. Excuse me for that. No so, problem. Uh, so I just, as a mom, I, I just couldn't let that beautiful spirit mm. of Jim's die. I really mm. couldn't. Jim aspired. He told, he, I um, mean, one of his lectures when he went back to his alma mater, 
one of his alma maters at Marquette University, he said he aspired to be a man of moral courage. Mm. And so in many ways, Jim's goodness and aspiration to be a person of moral courage challenged me big time after he died. It just challenged me to just help that uh, do something to keep Jim's goodness alive, Jim's challenge to all of us to be people of moral courage. And also, frankly, I felt as a government that we could do better. I, I was angry with our government that um, they had not been more honest with me, to be honest, about how strongly that uh, the Obama administration felt against negotiating with terrorists. Because I think had I realized that, I would have better understood how the hands were really tied of the FBI and State Department to help me more. So in many ways, I would have understood what I was going through better had our government been just plain honest and transparent with me and told me they really couldn't help. You know, um, that would have been helpful. So I wasn't happy with it. I really felt Americans deserved better that Americans needed advocates who could help them should they find themselves in this awful situation with a loved one taken abroad, um, either unjustly or by a criminal person or gang or terrorist. Um, and so I just felt determined for both those reasons to try to challenge our government to care for their fellow Americans and make um, Americans are, who do travel abroad, should they get in trouble, to make their return more of a priority, and also to challenge our government and all of us to just care, have the courage to try to make the world a better place. So it was, it was both of those things, really, that, you know, just made this my cause, if you will. It was my way of healing, really, mm. Jason. It's a remarkable story, and I hope folks will watch the video. It's it's a great movie, and we'll we'll share a link. It it does give a unique dimension to what you all went through and uh, where you get your energy and your passion and uh, trying to keep Jim's memory alive, but also to make something good of a bad situation, which you always tell people. And and I agree, we always have to do the best we can with what the Lord gives us, and uh, we have to soldier on regardless. And this story is. I think a good testament to that and your foundation, the work you're doing, I think it's important. And, and you've talked a lot about this, how accountability for hostage taking, no matter the perpetrator, whether it's a non-state actor or state actor and the importance of, you know, the, educating people about this and the prevalence of this phenomenon. If you go to the James W. Foley website, you'll see about 13 or 15 countries, um, about 53 cases that you know about hostage or wrongful detainees. It's remarkable research, folks, that, that the foundation is doing. It's not easy to do, especially because not only is the U.S. government very opaque about this, but a lot of governments in the world don't talk about these sorts of things. But I think that figure is much higher. Um, I encourage you to log on to the website and support them and, and the good work that they're doing because we need this. I and mean, that, that information is important. The information that comes out of the work you do helps advocates help others and what do you you know you said something earlier about rumors and, and this is a, a practical 
uh, question, but share a little bit about, because we see this a lot in hostage and unlawful detention cases, especially when they're high profile like this one. What happens, you know, a lot of these families will start getting tips and phone calls and rumors. And how did you handle the, what I'm, I'm sure was a flood of information at times about, well, was Jim here, was Jim there, I can help you do this, I can help you do that. How does a family deal with something like that? It was very difficult. Um, you know, that's the part that's so hard. I mean, I really think families need help. Um, I really think families need advocates mm. um, who can help them um, with that because it is, it's overwhelming and people do take advantage. Uh, people, you know, offered information for money, wanted right. um, money for information. Um, and um, then there were some good people too, you know, in the midst of it, that's what's hard. It's hard to sift through. There were some people really trying to break through and give us real information also. Um, but I found that part very, very difficult. And that um, it was thanks to some good people who stepped up. Um, uh, that's why a lot of your work, Jason, advocate that you are for so many people um, with your vast knowledge and experience in this area. People like you are essential um, people, but at that, but when you first, for something horrible like this first happens, you don't know the good people. You don't mm. know who is really a good person and, and honestly trying to help and who is trying to use the situation for themselves. So you have to weed it all out. And I really think a lot of that is uh, I did through prayer and just through good people who stepped up to help us. Um, but there was not enough of that in place from the government itself. Hmm. I felt that our government needed some person who could at least be an advocate for a fellow American in this situation. And that was the part I felt that as a country, we could do better for citizens in this situation. That um, Consul Affairs um, offered kindness, which was lovely, but we needed more guidance, um, Jason. We needed to know who we should be speaking to, how we could stay informed, what was the best way we could advocate for our loved one to come home. So that's an important, uh, important point. And before we talk about accountability, let's talk about that a little bit. How did the special envoy for hostage affairs uh, come about? And where do you think it needs to improve? We have a new law in the books now called the Levinson Law, where it talks a lot about that, uh, that post and different duties and obligations now that the government has. We're going to be publishing in a few weeks a, a law note, a commentary on the Levinson Law that looks at the new authorities and takes essentially the codification of the Obama executive orders. But it added a few things to it. Um, what is, what is this new special envoy? We've had well, him on the books for a few sure. years. Well, all there was none of that when Jim none was captured. None of it, zero. Uh, none right. of that. Yeah. There was nothing. We had no one who was an, our advocate within the government. 
except for our friendly counselor affairs who told us Jim was gone, hmm. was, had been kidnapped. And she was lovely, but uh, really unable to tell us or um, guide us at all. So um, after Jim died, Jim was killed. A few weeks later, Stephen Sotloff met the same fate, a, mm -hmm. a talented journalist from Florida. A few weeks later, it was Peter Kassig, a very passionate, generous aid worker, a former ranger, a very brave young man trying to help the people who were um, desperately struggling in Syria with the bombing from Assad. And then um, several months later, we were told that um, uh, the beloved Kayla Mueller, right. another very um, uh, passionate young aid worker was killed in Syria. Um, a few months previous to that, um, Marie Colvin had been killed, a, a journalist. Uh, Warren Weinstein was killed in captivity and Luke Summers. So it took the deaths of all of these Americans between 2014 and 2015 to get the attention of our government, frankly. And it was at that point, President Obama said, oh dear, I guess we better reevaluate what we're doing for American hostages, which was very good of him. Um, and um, he, his administration. And that is when they asked the National Center for Counterterrorism to undertake an, an all of government hostage policy review. Um, and what they did was reach out to all government agencies who deal with Americans who are taken abroad, kidnapped or unjustly detained and they reached out to all families they had on record who had experienced a hostage taking of a, of a loved one, which was a big undertaking for them. And they um, had an amazing gentleman, a, a Lieutenant General um, Sokolik led it. Mm -hmm. And it was very well done. I, I totally commend him for his work beautifully done in that they took time invited us as families who'd experienced this horrible ordeal to say what happened what what we went through who helped what didn't what do we need what was not there how do we did we think the government should have been able to help etc so it was a very thorough review and to president obama's credit he really took all of um, General Sokolik's um, recommendations, all of them. Um, this review took about nine months. And so by June of 2015, President Obama issued what we call the Presidential Policy Directive 30 mm -hmm. and an executive order. And it was those two policies and orders that actually gave us what we have today. So um, we currently have a hostage recovery fusion style um, located at the FBI that does strategizing around cases of um, people who are um, taken hostage, usually by criminal gangs or terrorists. Um, we also now have the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, which deals more with wrongful um, detainees. 
or hostages when we don't know who the captors are. Mm -hmm. And the third branch is, uh, is really the hostage recovery group, which is part of the National Security Council at the White House. So at least we have a mechanism now and some advocates for families. It's still a bit of a bureaucracy in itself, but the leadership of these um, entities has really been extraordinary in these um, years since 2015. We've had some great people step up in these roles. And additionally, within the fusion cell, there's a, um, two other entities, three really, a family engagement person whose job is to engage with the family, give them some guidance about where they're going and help families connect with people to speak to within the government. There's also an intelligence person who's supposed to help families get declassification of information. So information that the government may have, um, but cannot because it cannot share with the family because it's classified that's supposed to help that that's still an issue but nevertheless mm. um that's in place and um, what's the other one i'm trying to think of forgive me here well there's several other pieces of the fusion cell the but, group the, 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 yeah. the group as well yeah mm -hmm. yeah so that has been a big step forward. Um, currently, we have uh, we've had several very very good um, special envoys for hostage affairs. Um, the Trump administration did make the return of Amer innocent Americans more of a priority, and um, Robert O'Brien was was a huge help to that. Um, because he took that mission on with him when he became the national security advisor. So a lot of it has to do with leadership. And that's what I found, that even this current um, structure that PPD 30 put in place, while very helpful, it still really gets down to the leadership um, at the White House level, really. It's um, the president... Um, are, um, in many ways decides how much of a priority um, the return of our hostages is. Because a lot of times captors use these hostages to interfere with our foreign policy. Mm -hmm. um, people who take our citizens are often very shrewd about why they take them, you know? And um, so that's what adds to the complexity of really bringing Americans home. It really can be a very difficult process, as you know, Jason. Yeah, you know, it's a remarkable tool, uh, even though I agree with you, uh, we have a lot of work to do to keep it, uh, to, to improve it. Uh, but a lot of this helps because the advocacy work that one does in cases like these, whether you have you know, someone who's paying you or you're doing this pro bono or whatever it is that the people, you know, whatever representation as an advocate, it's extremely daunt, difficult, almost impossible in some cases as, as attorneys and, and advocates to press the government to share or release any information uh, that can help you in the work that you do. And I know that in prior cases that we've worked on, we've contemplated, uh, for example, using the courts, but 
that's almost a that's extremely difficult and challenging because the courts tend not to want to in step into that space and there's precedent that pretty much makes it just about impossible so even a loved one that wants to say and the families will ask you can i go to court can i sue someone can i force the agencies to act uh, maybe through a mandamus or something uh, people have tried uh, there's case law on this and it's it's very difficult and and not really an efficient use of time but and that's hard to say that to someone because this is somebody you, know, you can't put a price on the life of anyone uh, but when you're on the outside and you're trying to help someone who's caught in that very crucible you're talking about, Diane, the one that's somebody being held by a non-state actor or a state actor for political leverage. And the law doesn't say this, but I believe it should say it someday. The U.S. government has a duty to help those people. One thing is to be unlawfully in prison because you're drunk driving somewhere or you commit a crime, a common crime, and you're locked up and there's due process. But when there's no due process, when you're being picked up solely because you're an American or you were picked up, that's why it's important to study. And I'm glad the Levinson Law says this. Uh, it talks about the circumstances in the case. You can be picked up for a, a common crime. Let's say you were rowdy at a bar, you traveled somewhere and you, they picked you up for rowdy behavior. That case can become a hostage case. Exactly. So it, it, it's very, exactly. it's extremely complex. And I always tell you, know, yeah, and I always tell Americans traveling overseas in, in my private practice when I was doing that sort of thing, before I became more involved in this type of work, educate yourself about where you're going, read the travel warnings that thank God they're much better now than what they used to be, and take precautions because the U.S. government, frankly, will not be able to help you in most cases. A lot of it hinges on where you're going also. And we have better tools now uh, but what Diane's saying is extremely important, and I hope someday we can get around to that, that even with the information sharing and the, de the classification, declassification of information, uh, uh, some of these cases can start off as non-hostage cases and can become hostage cases because there's a lot of countries, people forget most countries in the world are not very nice to me, most countries are very nice to Americans, but there are places you go where they use you as leverage, and Diane was alone. And so were all these other families not so long ago when these things were happening. And I can't underscore what a huge step in the right direction. Diane and other advocates have helped fill a void to give tools to people going through these problems. Um, as we get close to the end of the show, Diane, I just want to ask you a little bit about something we feel strongly about here at the Global Liberty Alliance, accountability, uh, how important is accountability. In fact, last year, uh, we had some phenomenal news uh, a few blocks away from our offices here in Old Town in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. Uh, two individuals uh, were picked up that we you know, that are now in U.S. custody, of course, uh, were, were finally, they unsealed an indictment uh, for, I think it's eight or, eight or seven count uh, uh, indictment involving the hostage taking of multiple Americans, including your son. But what did it feel like when you learned? I know you knew there were some details that you had heard about before, but what did it feel like that finally at least two of the perpetrators were being brought to justice in a court of U.S. law? 
Well, I feel accountability is essential. I mean, mm -hmm. if we want to stop people from taking our citizens, we must hold people accountable. And mm -hmm. rarely is accountability happen happening mm -hmm. just because um, the criminals and other government rogue, rogue governments are very difficult to hold accountable so mm -hmm. accountability is essential and that's essentially um, we started the james foley legacy foundation to be that advocate for hostage families you know and one of the things we felt we had to do is we had we three three years ago we undertook um, annual research with hostage families and government officials that's confidential anonymous to ask families how are we doing are we there for you what what are the gaps what what are needed what how can we improve what needs to be improved and we find and it, it's become a very a good tool. It's called Bringing Americans Home, which is on our website also. Actually, June 9th, we'll present the findings for this year or this past year of how our government is doing in that regard. But every year we find there's many, many challenges. And one of the challenges is certainly accountability. And yes, it felt good to finally have these two men held accountable, but this was years of work from the Foley Foundation and good partners, one being the Soufant Group, lots of good people. As you know, Jason, it takes many, many pe good people to make these, yes. these things happen. Um, so um, I, I just think it's essential. And we need to do really real research to know how to deter people who kidnap our citizens. Um, blocking blocking negotiation with captors is not a reasonable way to bring people home. And that was what we experienced. Um, we were not allowed to negotiate in any way with the captors. And we need to have um, shrewd means of negotiation, really. Yeah, and, 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 and um, let me tell you something, that what you're saying there, uh, Diane's saying a lot there. I won't be able to unpack all of it, but what, what she says there about you're not allowed to talk to, um, their cases, I, I'm not going to get into the specifics of them, uh, where families have been, I wouldn't say threatened, but have been put in a position where they're make, they have to make this horrible choice between do I talk and do I negotiate or do I, do I try and save my loved one uh, or do I risk my government coming after me and prosecuting me for some alleged crime that uh, you know, or sanction violation, for example, that's a horrible place to put a family, uh, a, a loved one. We were threatened. We were threatened by our government that I we remember prosecuting for attempting to uh, get a ransom together to help Jim come home. Well, and that's um, we, that's unacceptable. I mean, when it comes to saving yeah. my loved one, and that is still an issue. Um, yes, it is. That, it is. Um, it's still an issue for families that they cannot privately, um, you know, do that without that threat. Never mind any generous donors who might be willing to help a family 
they could be held, you yes. know, prosecuted uh, for. So there are many issues that still remain. And that is why we're very busy at the James <laughs> Farley Legacy <laughs> Foundation, frankly, yeah. because the other, other side of our mission besides the hostage advocacy is we try to work on preventative safety measures. Mm -hmm. um, ours is primarily geared towards the journalists, but um, most of what we have um, done in that regard is geared towards aspiring young Americans who want to go out in the world. We need brave Americans out in the world doing work of diplomacy and humanitarian work, journalism, et cetera, um, educating. And But we need to arm ourselves, as Jason just said, with um, awareness security concerns and and really understanding digital security how mm -hmm. we can be followed with our cell phones and how to um, protect ourselves in various countries even within our own country sadly yeah. so so um, we need to be savvy about that um, for sure as we come to the end uh, we have a few more minutes and uh, diana kind of read my mind um what words of advice and you've given a lot of advice here especially to the next generation of thought leader and journalists and people like like james foley uh if you want people to jump into this uh, and help uh, what advice will you give them and i want to underscore one last thing uh, that, that diane's saying for the advocates out there we need more people to jump in this space don't be scared about uh jumping in uh, there's a lot of work to do and i believe amongst lawyers and advocates, we can agree to disagree on certain things, but we have to stay focused that when an American is unlawfully in prison or held hostage because they're Americans, um, we have to walk over hot coals. Uh, we have to engage in that same rigorous debate within our government. And if we get threatened, and by the way, I have been, I've been told many things before about things I should or shouldn't do, but you have to push back and you have to do so diplomatically. The law gives you room to do this. And we have to be brave and step into this. And we need more advocates to jump into this and uh, educate and help families. There's a lot of them that need help. And I think we need more people to do it. But if you're speaking to those folks, Diane, or somebody who maybe is listening to this in anywhere in the United States who wants to do more, uh, what do you think they should do? Before, you know, in addition to going to your website, which we'll share with the group, uh, what what are your closing thoughts for them? Well, first, I've been remiss. Actually, I, I want to um, highlight that attorney Jason Paul uh -oh, who is uh -oh. leading this. That's not supposed to be on the agenda, but okay. <laughs> the recipient of the James W. Foley Hostage Advocate Award this mm. year. Every year, the, the Foley Foundation has three events where we try to build community, community awareness and, and advocacy for this issue. And one of our major events in Washington are the Foley Freedom Awards. This year, they'll be on August um, 19th. You're all invited, anyone can attend virtually or in person, you know, tickets and um, information are on our website. You're all um, 
cordially invited. We also have an annual Freedom Run that we have virtually and in person in New Hampshire and Washington. We could not do it last year because of COVID. But all, both of those events are to raise awareness about the importance of investigative journalism, safety, and mm -hmm. hostages who are in need of us. And then the final event that we now tend to have in the spring is the rollout of our annual research. So people can know how is our government doing, in fact, in helping um, Americans, desperate Americans who are being held against their will, innocent Americans who this day need help. And that is why Jason is getting this award because he's one of those Americans who has shown the moral courage to use his expertise and skill to help desperate families in this situation. And I would just challenge all of you to be people of moral courage in whatever you choose to do. The world needs your goodness and we need people who wanna make a difference. Thank well, you. Well, Diane, I will definitely press the dinner, but I think we're gonna to have to edit out all the, uh, the Jason Award thing. I don't. <laughs> oh, I don't. I no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I, I, I want to thank you all, though, for for the opportunity to help and 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 tell folks that it it really was a and has been a team effort. There are so many people uh, that have helped uh, bring Americans home and and non-Americans home, and it's becoming an international effort. Uh, there's a lot of yes. uh, uh, efforts out in the UK. I know you've been you've traveled uh, to the UK and other countries to to educate and help folks. And I, I see it organically, Diane, it's taken off uh, because of your leadership, leadership of the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation. I encourage people listening to this, if you can visit the website, donate every dollar counts. Uh, it, it, they put it to very good use. And I know that they're going to continue being uh, beacons of hope for a lot of people and help us prevent, but also hold to account and, and bring people home uh, this 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 cycle that has to break. It's going to take some time, uh, but I think in a very short span of time, you've shown Diane and, and your team uh, how how much you can accomplish when you bring together so many good people from many backgrounds: Republicans, Democrats, moderates, non you know non political people, uh, just people who are committed to helping others uh, uh, in this practice and also uh, create you know, close the accountability gap which I think is important. You have to do that as well. So Diane Foley, thank you so much for sharing time with us today. An and you're, you're always welcome here. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in, in June. Thank you for your time, Jason, and all you do for others. God bless you. God bless you, Diane. Mm -hmm.